looking this morning at Psalm 146. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man, in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked... He turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God and heavenly Father, we do praise You and thank You for the wonderful truth of Your word. And we... Thank you for the book of Psalms, which are a great comfort and uh, encouragement to us, and this uh, wonderful, glorious book of praise that you have given to us right in the in the middle of your word. Uh, and we just pray that as we consider this particular psalm this morning, that you would truly stir our hearts, stir our souls to truly praise your holy name. And to magnify your name, to glorify you. Because you are our hope. And you are our help. And you alone, O oh Lord, are worthy of our trust. And you alone are worthy of our worship and our praise. And so we pray that your spirit would instruct us in these things. And that you would now have your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Doxology is simply an offering up of praise or an exaltation of the Lord and of His name and of His glory. And as a part of worship, a doxology is typically a standalone element and often comes at the end of the worship service as we acknowledge That to God alone belongs the glory. Now in God's inspired hymn book, the book of Psalms, doxologies of course are found throughout the Psalter, but there are several notable ones that appear at the end of each of the the five books that make up the Psalter. If you remember, the the book of Psalms is divided up uh, into uh, five different books of varying lengths. Well, in four of those five places... At the end of, uh, of each of those books, there are found doxologies. 
And in four of those places, uh, the doxologies are, are uh, simply the last line or two of, of a larger psalm. So that, uh, for example, usually at the end of our morning service here, Lord willing, uh, we will be singing the doxology from the end of book two, uh, which is found in Psalm 72, verses 18 and 19. But now in our study of the Psalms, in this, this series, the series, the summers in the Psalms, we've come to the end of not only book five, but we also are coming to the end of the entire Psalter. And here we find the ultimate doxology as the final five Psalms make up this final doxology for the entire book of Psalms. Psalm 146 to 150 are a fitting conclusion to this book of praise, emphasizing the wonderful truth that God alone is worthy to receive our praise and our worship. But in each of these final psalms, there's actually something particular that's being acknowledged about the Lord and why He is to receive all the glory and the honor and the praise. And so in Psalm 146, the truth that's being exalted and praised here is that the Lord our God is our one true hope. Not only through the troubles and the trials of this life, but He is our hope for the eternal life to come. And if there's anything that is so sorely needed in the broken and shattered lives of people in the world today, it is this. It is the sure and certain hope that is offered through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That not only comforts and encourages, but that gives true everlasting peace and comfort. This confident hope is certainly worth acknowledging by the soul-stirred praise of all people. The psalmist begins with a general call to all to simply praise the Lord. Now this phrase is a compound of two Hebrew words, halal, which means praise, and yah, which is the shortened form of the covenant name of God, Yahweh or, or Jehovah. And together... These two words come into English as hallelujah. Right? Not only Psalm 146, but each of these psalms that conclude the Psalter begin and end with this hallelujah. Now when we typically say hallelujah, we often do so more as an exclamation to sort of show our approval and our excitement. And so something wonderful happens, we say hallelujah. God answers our prayers. We say, Hallelujah. Someone we know is recovered from illness. We say, Hallelujah. A new baby is born. We say, Hallelujah. We get a, the, the job promotion comes through. We say, Hallelujah. But with every Hallelujah, there's actually a command. Right? It's in the imperative form. A charge is being made to all who may be listening that you should praise the Lord. Now, undoubtedly, the psalmist is very excited. But he is chiefly issuing a general call, a command to all people to praise the Lord. 
And he's going to back up that charge with a variety of solid reasons showing why the Lord is our only hope and thus why He alone is worthy of such praise. But, if you're going to issue a call to everyone else to praise the Lord, well, it might be a good thing to set the example and praise the Lord yourself. And this is exactly what the psalmist does here. Indeed, his soul, the very essence of his being, is so stirred by his meditation on the Lord as, as his hope that he sets a personal example of how just how to praise the Lord. And the first thing we want to note, though, is that after the initial hallelujah, the second praise the Lord that we see in verse 1 actually includes the full covenant name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, as opposed to that shortened form of just Yah. And this, along with the psalmist's confession in verse 2, that he'll sing praises to my God, makes the praise not only very personal, but also puts it in a very covenantal context. As it uses not only the name God gave to Moses when he spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus 3, but it also reflects the very language of God's covenant with his people. I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's the covenant language that we see really throughout the scriptures. And so though the call is made to all to come and praise the Lord, of course the foundation of that call is being set on the sure and certain hope that we are in covenant with God, that we are in this covenant relationship with Him. Now for the psalmist, uh, this hope is secured by just simply being born a child of Abraham and then seeking after the God of Abraham. But for us here in the 21st century, the same and even a more certain hope is secured by being born again as a child of Abraham by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, as we'll see, is really the embodiment. Christ is the embodiment of our hope. And thus He really is the focus of our praise and of our worship that we see described here. And so we acknowledge that there is this covenantal, personal, covenantal foundation to this hope, to this praise. But we also note here that the desire to praise the Lord encompasses the psalmist's entire being. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Now the soul or the spirit is, is the very essence of our being. Right? Without the soul, we are nothing but, but dust. And so praising the Lord with your soul is really praising Him with everything you have and are. It's very similar to the call that we see in, uh, we've seen in several other psalms where to praise and, and to give thanks to God with whole hearts, right? with every a part of our being, with a whole completeness of our hearts, mind, soul. With every fiber of our being we're praising the Lord. Indeed, what a great example for us to imitate. That we would give praise to God with such intensity that every fiber of our being is focused on praising the Lord. 
You see, it's not just about intensity. It also involves duration. And it's not just that we come here for a brief period of time and, and intensely praise the Lord in our worship together. We should do that and we ought to do that. But there's, there's a duration. It extends even beyond this time of called worship that we enjoy on the Lord's Day. Verse 2, while I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And so here the psalmist is committed to giving praise to God throughout his entire life with every breath that he breathes. Indeed, at all times, right during good times, right times of joy, times of accomplishment, give praise to the Lord, but also during difficult times, during times of suffering and trial, but to give praise to the Lord, especially, especially as we meditate on the Lord as our sure and certain hope. We ought to praise Him at all times while we live and even beyond. Right, look, at, look at the end of verse 2. And then think about this. He says, you know, as long as I have my being, Consider this, at what time do you not have your being? When do you not have your being? Never. You see, once conceived and, and as we're being formed and fashioned in the womb by our Creator, the Lord gives us a soul. And again, the soul is the very essence of our being. Now, of course, throughout this life and from that time when, when we're conceived and, and there's, there's cells being formed and fashioned that the Lord is, is creating into uh, this life, into a, into a child, into uh, a body. And so in this life, our souls are, are intimately tied to our bodies. But at death, what happens? Our bodies return to the dust. But what about our souls? Do they just disappear? No, our souls carry on. And so our being actually continues. As our souls will either pass immediately into glory, right, for the righteous, that is our wonderful hope, that our souls at the time of death, one of the blessings of, uh, that we enjoy because of Christ's resurrection, uh, at the time of our death, our souls immediately pass into glory, as our bodies return to the grave and to the dust, it's the great hope of the righteous, or for the unbeliever, for the wicked, their souls are held in the darkness of chains until the day of judgment. But they continue on. And so for the one in covenant with God, and even, even for the, the, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, our praise to God begins now in this life and it will never end. There will be no interruption in the praise that we offer up to the Lord. Because we will always, since our time of conception, we will always have our being. We're not going to be in the same form. We're going to be without body for a time. But what happens at the 
the glorious resurrection, our souls are reunited with our bodies and our glorified bodies. And then we're standing in the glorious presence with everyone uh, in uh, fullness of joy for all eternity, giving praise and worship to God. But right now, those who've died in Christ, their souls right now are in, in glory in the presence of the Lord. And so as long as we have our being, we will praise our God and we will sing praise to our God. So forever, this is truly the soul-stirred praise. It begins in this life, but it continues on forever and ever and ever. But then in verse 3, the psalmist, kind of very abruptly after meditating on and talking about this soul-stirred praise, he, he issues a warning. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. Now again, this, this seems out of place. And he was just talking about this, this soul-stirred praise and worship. Right? We were, we we're thinking about, wow, what is it going to be like to praise God? I mean, we're praising Him now. We'll praise Him forever, even on through death itself and on through eternity in the future. But then there's this warning, a command even, to not trust in princes. So it's the connection, right? Because there's got to be a connection. Why does he just bring this up about trusting in princes? Well, it's simply this. And it sounds perhaps somewhat familiar but where your trust or hope is, there your praise and worship will be also. Right? Where your trust or hope is, there your praise and worship will be also. You see, worship and praise and trust and hope, of course, are very much connected. Because that in which we place our trust or, or that which, which we look to, uh, look to for our hope we're going to revere and honor that. Because we're depending, our lives often are depending on it. And it's an easy slide from reverence and honor to then praising and worshiping. And indeed, this is an appropriate warning that's greatly needed in, even in our own days. As we can too easily place our hope and our trust in others. Although we don't have princes in our nation, we do have those who wield great power and influence. We have a presidents and political leaders. And we, we see the, the effects of this, right? In the, in the past several elections, uh, election cycles, we've, we've seen extreme emotional and, and mental distress displayed openly when candidates lose elections, right? You have people crying out in the streets as if the whole world was coming to end. And, and people say, oh, well, so-and-so is elected, and oh, I'm moving out of the country. This country won't be fit to live in. Now the intense reaction is, again, intimately tied to the hope and the trust that they had put into their candidate. And if their candidate loses then everything they've hoped for has been lost and they're crushed. They were hoping for, for hope and change and they got nothing. 
Indeed, the reaction itself is really an indication of the true hopelessness that really exists in our society today. That people are are so inclined to quickly go after any shiny penny that appears on the scene and, and put all their hope and trust in that one little thing. And then it doesn't succeed or it's taken away. And they're left with nothing because they have no sure and certain hope to trust in. And so they look to, to political leaders. But it's not just political leaders and princes that we're warned about trusting. Psalmist clarifies even any son of man, right? any person, including ourselves. Right? The great temptation is, is to trust in others or to trust in ourselves. But the problem in doing so, the problem with putting your trust and hope in, in any man, is that there's no help to be found in our fellow man. And there are two key reasons for this. First, is consider this question, why? Why would you trust in someone or put your hope in someone who can't even save themselves? Right? Someone who's in the very same condition of sin and misery that you are. Someone who's really incapable of helping you even if they had desire. And the reality is they very often don't have the desire to help others because they're so focused upon themselves. See, helping others is not something that comes naturally to us. Preserving ourselves, helping ourselves, that comes naturally to us. And we often do a very terrible job at it. Man is powerless to save himself. And so it's foolish then to think that he could save others. And so it's even more foolish to put your trust in someone who can't even save themselves. Well, secondly, the psalmist emphasizes here just the simple brevity of human existence. Verse 4, His spirit departs, he returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. See, all mankind is vulnerable to the curse of death. And the thing is, we don't know when it's going to come. And so if you put your trust in a prince or a president and then they die, right? their spirit departs, that is the soul leaves the body and, and goes to its place, either to glory or to the darkness, and the body returns to the earth. But I want you to note something here, kind of interesting, in verse 4. The possessive pronoun. It's not just that he returns to the earth, but he returns to his earth. See, this points us back to Genesis 3.19. 
and the curse placed upon mankind for sin. Actually, it points us back even uh, earlier than that when God created man from the dust of the earth and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. But then with the curse, after Adam and Eve had rebelled against God and, and ate of the forbidden fruit, God is loving out the curses against them. And to the man, he says, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. In other words, he's going to return to the very same dust from which he came. Friends, why put your trust in dust? Because once death comes, that's it. Whatever hope you had and placed in that person, whatever you trust had placed in them, it's gone. Right? If they had made plans, and, and often uh, the, those that, that people trust in, they have these wonderful, glorious plans, and they may even make great promises, but once they're gone, poof, everything's gone. In the very same day that they die... Everything that you hoped and trusted in is gone. And it returns to dust. Sons of men, and I want to say this also includes daughters as well, but sons of men don't make good saviors in whom you can trust. Because they're nothing but dust. And they will only disappoint and they will only discourage. And oftentimes, they will even take advantage. And so friends, where do we hope? In whom do we put our trust? In whom ought we then to direct our praise? Well, only in the one true living God. As the psalmist moves from the warning to the blessing in verse 5, Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And so the one who trusts in princes or sons of men, who's repeatedly disappointed, discouraged, and, and often taken advantage of, is contrasted here to the godly man whose trust is in the Lord. He's happy and he's blessed. He's content. And he's never disappointed. He's never dismayed or discouraged. Because his hope and trust are in one who can truly deliver the help that's needed and who's not suddenly going to perish, leaving masses of hopeless and emotionally distraught followers crying out in the streets as if the whole world was coming to an end. Now to demonstrate the lack of disappointment and discouragement for the one who trusts in the Lord, the psalmist specifically refers to the Lord as the God of Jacob. <clears throat> now this is we find this term God of Jacob uh, throughout uh, the, the Old Testament, but it's interesting that he doesn't refer to the God of Israel, right? Israel was the more common uh, term to refer to uh, the people of God. Of course, Jacob and Israel both refer not just to the nation, but to the man. Right? Jacob, the son of Isaac, the patriarch of the twelve tribes. And Jacob was the name given at his birth as he was grasping at the heel of his brother as if to surpass him. 
And so he was named Jacob, which basically means supplanter or usurper. And of course, as we know, the story of Jacob there in the book of Genesis, Jacob lived this out in his life. Right? It was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. He was, he was a conniver. And he tricked his foolish brother into giving up his birthright. And then he even deceived his father in order to receive the chief blessing. In other words, Jacob was a prime example of a man that you would not want to put your trust in. But as God called Jacob and entered into a covenant with him, he changed Jacob's name, marking the fact that Jacob had now become a new man. And we see this in Genesis 32, after God had uh, wrestled with Jacob and Jacob sought a blessing from the Lord. The Lord says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And so Israel was the victor. So why is the psalmist using the God of Jacob here and not the God of Israel? By using this designation, the psalmist is really drawing attention, not really to Jacob, but to God's trustworthiness. And the fact that trusting in Him will not lead to disappointment. You see, because he was still the God of Jacob, the conniver. Before Jacob was born, we know that God had appointed that the older shall serve the younger. right? The glorious doctrine of election. And that the covenant promises would then belong to Jacob and not to Esau. And the wonderful thing is, is that God maintained His faithfulness to that promise despite Jacob's life of conniving schemes. God was patient and long-suffering with Jacob. And so the point to remember here, friends, is this. If God was so patient and long-suffering with Jacob, ultimately delivering on the promises that He had made from the beginning... Well, then how much more will the Lord do the same for us through the Lord Jesus Christ? As we trust in Him. As we trust in His righteousness, in His faithfulness, and in His perfect work that He accomplished on the cross for us to secure our redemption. Trust in the Lord and put your hope in Him and you will surely not be disappointed. Now to solidify this, this case even further, the psalmist throughout the rest of the psalm now lays out a variety of reasons as to why we should praise the Lord as our one true hope. And he does this first by listing ten attributes or characteristics of God and as we go through them, you'll see that they find really their fullest expression in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, the very foundation of our hope and the one in whom we ought to trust. And first we ought to trust in the Lord who is the omnipotent, almighty creator. First part of verse 6, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. God's power and might is on display in all creation and in his sustaining of everything that he's made. And if you're going to hope and, and trust in someone... 
for your salvation. Well, you want your hope and trust for salvation to be in someone who actually has the power and the strength to deliver. I tell you, no one has greater power to deliver than the God who created everything. He is omnipotent. He is almighty. He is all-powerful. And secondly, we ought to hope in the Lord because He is faithful and He keeps truth forever. God is a covenant God. And we looked at this with Jacob. He's, he's a God who makes promises and He keeps them even when the one He's made promises to is a conniving liar as Jacob was. The God remains true. Not just occasionally, not just here and there, but God remains true and faithful forever. The third, we ought to put our hope and our trust in the Lord because He is righteous, who executes justice for the oppressed. Now, righteousness means that God always does what is good and right. And, and so when the oppressed cry out to Him in faith, He responds rightly by both delivering the oppressed, but then also judging the oppressor. And so the great truth that we claim is that the judge of all the earth surely does right. He is righteous. And if he is righteous, well then he's worth putting your trust in and praising. But we should also put our hope in the Lord because he is also merciful, giving food to the hungry. And though he sovereignly allows neediness due to the sin that was brought into the world, the Lord is quick to supply all that we need. But He's merciful, even ready to provide the most basic of needs like food to the hungry. And again, if we want someone to depend on and trust in, well, we should want the Lord God who abounds in mercy and who truly hears and responds to the cries of the needy. The fifth, we should trust in the Lord because He is most gracious. And then he gives freedom to the prisoners. Now God's grace is doing good for the undeserving. And we know prisoners are often in prison for a reason. And certainly sometimes that reason may be unjustified. And surely the Lord will render justice and bring deliverance. But mostly people are in prison for justifiable reasons. And yet the Lord is most gracious to free those in prison, to free those in chains and bonds. Indeed, this is what He did for the church in the Old Testament, for for Israel, in freeing them from the bondage and slavery in Egypt. And it's what He's now done for us through Jesus Christ, graciously freeing us from the bondage of Satan's sin and death when we didn't deserve it. And yet He frees us from those shackles and from that prison of Satan's grip. God is most gracious. A sixth, we hope in the Lord because He is most wise, that He opens the eyes of the blind. Now what's interesting here is that nowhere in the Old Testament do we find a miracle of the Lord healing the blind and restoring sight. And so oftentimes in the Old Testament context, opening the eyes of the blind was often used in a spiritual sense to describe the power and the wisdom of God's Word, His law, which, for example, in Psalm 19, makes wise the simple and enlightening the eyes. 
chasing away the darkness of sin and deceit and bringing into view the truth of God's Word, that we might live by it and that we might glorify Him. Well, this certainly carries over into the New Testament with the power of the Gospel. That those who were once dead in sins and transgressions, and they were blind because of their sin, they have now found life. And their eyes have been opened to the glorious truth of the gospel and the new way of living in Christ Jesus. And so that even the miracles that Jesus performed of healing the blind and restoring the sight, which ultimately this psalm is is prophetically pointing toward, and we have other examples, uh, Isaiah 61, which speaks of uh, bringing sight to uh, the blind. And so yes, they're they're pointing to a time when the literal sight of the blind would be... uh, would be restored through Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. And that's what the psalm is is speaking to and pointing to here. But it's also that being made wise, that spiritual sight that the Lord gives to sinners who were once blinded by the darkness of sin. And so even the New Testament, even those examples of uh, the, the occasions where we have Jesus bringing sight to the blind, it's not just opening their eyes, their physical eyes, but it's opening the eyes of their hearts that they might see the truth of the gospel and salvation in Jesus himself. So friends, put your trust in a wise God who can truly open the eyes of the blind. And the next reason we have to put your trust in the Lord is because He is a compassionate God, raising up those who are bowed down and and humbled by the neediness or or by affliction. The Lord lifts up the downtrodden and He exalts them to high and glorious positions. Indeed, it's the compassion of the Lord which Jesus demonstrates when He invites in Matthew 11, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A compassionate God is a God who's worth trusting in. And the Lord is to be our hope and trust because He is also loving, especially toward His people, the righteous. And of course, the important thing to remember here is that God doesn't love the righteous because they are already righteous. No, they were once enemies and and in rebellion against Him. And yet, as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He died for us when we were His enemies. That's how great He loves us. And the ninth reason that we ought to Praise the Lord our hope is because He is a God who protects the weak and the helpless. In verse 9, the Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow. Each of these, the stranger or sojourner, who often traveled through many dangers, the fatherless and the widow are the most vulnerable because they have no one to protect them. But God is mindful of them. And He cares, He provides, and He protects the most vulnerable. Again, showing that He is a sure and certain hope, and He does not and He will not disappoint. And then finally, we praise the Lord our hope because He is a just and holy God who will not allow the wicked to get away with their evil plots and schemes, but He turns them upside down 
And often in turning them upside down, He actually turns them back upon the wicked so that they become ensnared in their very own traps, the traps that they have set for the righteous. So God is just to bring judgment. And because He's just in punishing evildoers, well then it also means that He is a good God. And a good God isn't one in whom we can trust, a God who is a sure and certain hope. Beloved of God, consider all these attributes of our great God and Lord. Consider how they come to their fullness and are displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider in these times of hopelessness and despair, consider that we do have a hope. And that hope is sure, it is certain. That our only hope is in God the Lord and in His Son Jesus Christ. And so we ought to say hallelujah and praise the Lord. But beloved of God, that's not all. For not only does our God and Lord, our Savior and our covenant Redeemer have all these glorious attributes and perfections that would lead us to put our trust in Him, but He has a glorious position. That secures the very certainty of our hope. The Lord is King. Verse 10, The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Now these words are unmistakably fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who after laying down His own life and suffering the curse of death on the cross for our sins in our place, And He did that so that we might have forgiveness of sins, so that we might have peace and reconciliation with God. This Jesus, who was then raised up from the dead on the third day, securing the victory of our salvation, well, He then ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father, where He even now reigns to the glory of God. And because Jesus is the very Son of God, we know that He is also then the Creator And then through Him and by Him, all things were made through the Word of His power. He is the Word of God come in the flesh. And so He then rightly rules over all things that He's created. He sovereignly reigns and rules over all things, working out His perfect plan and His good pleasure to the praise of His glorious name. But also in a very particular way, Jesus reigns not just because He's the Son of God, the Creator, but He reigns as our Mediator, as our Savior, as our Redeemer. He reigns as the King of His people, the Church. Note the words of the psalmist here, Your God, O Zion. Again, Zion is God's dwelling place in the midst of His people. And it pictures the people of God whom He's redeemed and made a covenant with to always be their God and they will then be His people. Again, if this was true for the Old Testament saints, well, how much more true is it for us through whom Jesus Christ redeemed and saved by His shed blood? He is our one, one perfect mediator. And that He now reigns. And that He is the only King and Head of the Church. And as our mediatorial King, He is working out all things for the blessing and benefit of His people, the Church. As Paul says there at the end of of Ephesians 1. And so He reigns as our King. 
And then finally the Lord Jesus reigns as king eternal. He reigns forever and ever. And of His kingdom and glorious reign there is no end. And so the psalm here ultimately is pointing us toward the culmination of all things. That we see described in Revelation 11 verse 15. That the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. Beloved of God. This almighty, powerful King. This this Lord who has all these glorious and wonderful attributes. He is your God. He is your Lord. He is your Redeemer. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who truly reigns for your good. And for His glory in all things. Trust in Him then. Set your hope upon Him. Everyone else that you can think of that you could put your trust in or hope in is going to disappoint you. But the eternal King, the Lord Jesus Christ, will never disappoint you because He truly reigns. He reigns forever and ever. And you will not be disappointed if you would put your trust in Him alone. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. To the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do rejoice and give thanks for this wonderful reminder, this doxology of Your Word which calls us to, to praise Your holy name. And to glorify You, Lord, as we meditate upon all these wonderful attributes and the reasons that we have to put our trust in You and to put our our hope in You. Lord, we are just greatly humbled that we have such a wonderful God. That we have such a wonderful Redeemer and Lord and King who so loves us and cares for us even to the point where He would send His own begotten Son the Lord Jesus Christ is suffering, die for us. And that our King Jesus, even now, is reigning over all as King of kings, King of the nations. He's reigning, working out everything that happens for the good of His people, the church, and for His ultimate glory and praise and honor. Lord, all we are left to say is hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of our God. Praise our King. Father, we just pray that your Spirit would even uh, impress these things upon our hearts and that would inform our praise, not, not just during this hour, this time, on this day, but in how we live our lives. Not just now, but even on through eternity itself. May we truly praise your holy name. Let you alone be lifted up and glorified. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.